Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 24, Bob, Part 2, The Machine. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Alison. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Before we crack into the first episode, I just want to let you know, we now have a merch store. You can get things like shirts, hoodies, phone cases, cushions and mugs, all with the Hans Tuatara on them. It's another way you can help support the podcast if Patreon isn't your thing and you want to get something to show off as well. The hope is to get more things on there, like pins and hats, but I need to sell some stuff so Teespring will give me the chance to do that. So the more you buy, the more super sick swag I can peddle. I'll also be on the lookout for people that have ideas for designs we can put on shirts, etc. As well as people who can bring those ideas to paper. So if you have an idea, or you're an artist, hit me up. I'll put a link in the show notes to the storefront if you'd like to have a browse. With that out of the way, here is the second part of the two-part collaboration with the Happy Hour History Podcast on the union leader and New Zealand labour movement figure, Bob Semple. Some of you may have already listened to the episode on the Happy Hour History feed, as it has been available there for the last week, so you may switch off as this is the same episode. For those of you who wish to continue, make sure you have listened to part one, as it covers the early life of Semple and his rise through the union and labour movements of Aotearoa, resulting in his appointment to Minister of Public Works just prior to World War II. Just like the last episode, this is in the happy hour style, so it's me teaching Caden in a more informal chat, and there is a language warning, as I get very drunk and swear a lot. So if that isn't your cup of tea, maybe give this one a miss. Right then, let's get going. Hi everyone, this is Caden from Happy Hour History. Uh, you may have heard in our last episode that I was doing a collaboration with Thomas, who runs another history podcast called the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. And he came on to teach me about a, a Kiwi man called Robert Semple. And so we covered the first half of Semple's life in the last episode. So if you haven't heard that yet, you are going to want to start there. Um, but now this episode, Thomas is finally going to explain to me um, why this guy is so exciting, why he's kind of well known in the history community, because I actually didn't know anything about him before we started. So this was quite informative for me. Um, so listen on if you have listened to the first part and I did just want to say before we started anything um, that at time of recording this um, I did not have any kind of exciting news to release um, but luckily I do actually have something new to announce today um, so I have just created a Patreon so for anyone who would like to support the podcast um, beyond just kind of listening and giving feedback you can go to my Patreon and support me there if you are are so inclined. Um, there are various levels of um, kind of goodies that you can get as a patron. 
Um, obviously, all of the normal episodes will still be available to you, even if you decide you don't want to become a patron, totally fine. Um, but patrons at every level, even starting from just $1 a month, will be getting bonus episodes. And I did want to make this known to you all because um, I'm going to be releasing the first bonus episode in tandem with this. If you're listening to this far, far into the future, this is being released in October of 2019. And so to get kind of the spooky vibes going, I'm going to be releasing a couple of um, kind of short episodes about some different historical topics that are a bit Halloween-y, but some things that you might not be aware of. But so if you go to my Patreon, which is Happy Hour History Pod, um, so if you just go to patreon.com slash happy hour history pod, or you can just search for me on there, um, you will instantly get access to the first of these mini episodes if you uh, become a patron. So there's something immediately there, instant gratification for you all. You have a look if you're interested. Um, Like I said, there are different bonuses that you get at uh, the kind of different levels of being a patron that you can uh, involve yourself in. But that's probably enough of Patreon talk. Uh, Most of you are here for the regular content, so I will just say, um, as usual, if you listened to the last episode, this shouldn't be a shock to you, but Thomas will be posting this content on his page as well. So firstly, if you're listening to this here, um, please go follow him. But also, because we are cross-posting this within the episode itself, you'll hear us just kind of introduce ourselves. Um, And that's just so his audience gets to know me, uh, my audience gets to know him, and it makes it a bit easier for all of us. With that said, why don't we get started? tuning into part two um i'm here with thomas um and we're actually recording this directly after part one so it's only gotten messier since the first part of the right, episode more pissed. i'm like so... another side of down it's if anyone wants to know i'm drinking monty's crushed pear cider um hashtag not sponsored um <laughs> better if monty's would like to sponsor me please get in touch um but yeah, no, this is a New Zealand pear cider, um, which is great. I've also, uh, previous to this, I've been drinking Bond Store Kawakawa Gin. Uh, Kawakawa is a native New Zealand plant here in New Zealand, so it is gin uh, infused with Kawakawa leaves. Um, also, Bond Store, if not hashtag not sponsored, but if you'd like to get in touch with me, um, please do. <laughs> I'd very much like a sponsorship. And and you also run a whole podcast. And let's, let's I run a whole that. podcast! Not drunk, usually. Uh, this one's an uh, anomaly for you. This one is an anomaly for me. I try not to run my podcast whilst absolutely fucking smashed. Um, but yeah, I also run the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast, which is a chronological history of New Zealand from before people arrived all the way up to probably 2000. Um, 
well, I don't know. I haven't got that far yet. But at the moment, we haven't actually hit Europeans. At the moment, we are That's the best. Pre-European period. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're talking about Māori culture. We're talking about... Um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about weaving at time of recording. We're about to start talking about weaving. We're talking about carving. We're talking about social structure. We're talking about the marae, what the marae means and what it is, and kind of all that sort of stuff. We're also talking about what uh, Māori were doing, uh, you know, when they arrived in New Zealand and that kind of stuff. Because uh, New Zealand was the last major landmass discovered by humans. Um, so there's some quite interesting things about that and all this sort of stuff. And there's some more interesting history um, that we haven't talked about yet, but we're going to talk about. Unless you're talking about, unless you're listening way in the future, then we may have talked about it already. But <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of other shit that we're going to talk about, um, all about New Zealand, all about its history um, and that kind of stuff. Um, but of course, if you're listening on my feed, you're pretty used to what I'm doing and what I'm talking about. Um, so what the you know you may have listened to the previous episode, um, but I have someone else with me, which is weird. I don't normally have other people with me. Normally it's just me talking into a fucking microphone. So who's the other person that I've got? Hopefully you've listened to the other podcast, <laughs> otherwise you're gonna be really fucking left out. It's gonna be a bit weird. But I got someone else with me. Yeah, well, hopefully you've listened to part one. Otherwise, you've clicked on the wrong place. But I'm Keaton. Yeah. I uh, I run the Happy Hour History Podcast. Unlike Thomas, who runs a totally uh, serious and adult podcast about um, <laughs> something that he puts, you know, time and effort into truly uh, researching well and presenting in an adult manner. Um, I like to drink with friends and uh, teach them about a subject that I think would bring them into the fold of history, uh, make them fans if they have, you know, not thought about history since their, you know, last class in school. Um, and so we generally have a fun time. It's a bit ridiculous. It's more comedy history, so um, it's a bit less on the straight and narrow, um, which is exactly why I have um, my lovely guest host here today um, a bit pissed. So that's all, actually. A bit. I was, I was being really, really generous. So um, it's it's all thanks to me. So um, I'm really oh, tired. So Guys, I'm so fucking drunk right now. Like... <laughs> I'm sorry, if you're a regular wrestler of the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, I'm this so is, fucking sorry. This like, is, I'm so no, this fucking is, wasted this right now. This is exciting now. to them. This is like a side they've never had access to. Anyway, Anyways. we're here to talk about the Bob Simple. Or, or Bob Simple himself. Robert Simple. Bobby Big Nuts Simple. Who... Um, if you've listened to the previous episode, basically the quick, quick and dirty summary is that he was born in Australia, moved to New Zealand after he was blacklisted by um, the Australian mining companies, um, and ended up making a name for himself um, as quite a union leader. Uh, not just in, in, in mining, but unions in general. Um, and eventually made his way into Parliament, um, and then got kicked out, and then came back, and eventually became uh, one of the key figures um, in the first Labour government. Uh, so he's quite an important figure in that regard. Um, so, yeah, so he's all big into unions and that kind of stuff. So if you, you know, I would recommend going back to episode or the first episode of this um, to learn about what his background is and who he is and that kind of stuff, because it will kind of help in kind of building that picture of, um, kind of who he is and what is going to happen um, kind of from now on. Because we're going to talk about um, something specific that he had direct involvement with. 
And so, I am on the edge of my chair. I'm so ready. Oh. What, what, I have to know. What, where is this going? So, <laughs> so for anyone listening, I've been extremely vague with Caden about who I was going to talk about and what I was going to talk about. Which is for the best, because uh, otherwise I would have Googled it. Twitter. Yeah, I have been teasing you on Twitter a little bit about kind of where I'm going. This time, we're going to take a slightly different tack. So, to kind of put it in perspective, we are now in uh, World War Two. World War Two has started. Uh, New Zealand has declared war on uh, Nazi Germany, uh, which, if you're listening to this roughly yet, uh, when it's going to be released, um, this is actually the 80th year. Uh, 2019 is the 80th anniversary of New Zealand and Britain and basically the Commonwealth countries declaring war on Nazi Germany. So um, it's kind of it's kind of you know poetic. We're gonna we're gonna take a slightly different tack uh, just briefly. Um, so we're actually going to talk about Australia uh, for one. So uh, we're going to talk about Darwin. Darwin is a city uh, in the Northern Territory of Australia on the Aussie's North Coast. And it's a city of about 130,000 people. Um, so it's quite a, quite a decently sized city, at least in the context of New Zealand and Australia. I don't know about like London's like fucking 10 million people. Yeah, at first I was like, oh, that's kind of a small city. And then, and then you're like, oh, it's decently sized. And I was like, okay, yep, decently sized. Yeah, in terms of, like, New Zealand, like, our largest city is Auckland, and that's about one point something million people, right? We've got about 4.8 million people in the country, right? So 130,000 people? That's cute. That's reasonably sized for a New Zealand city. That's (laughs) so cute. I love that. Was that meant to be derogatory? Not like a pejorative or anything. It just sounds sounds so peaceful to have only that many people. Yeah, it's so good. Like, I live in Wellington, and that's, like... Less than five hundred thousand, I think. So, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I like it. It's pretty good. Like Dunedin is about one hundred thirty thousand people, and they lose about twenty thousand people just to the students leaving every year. So you know that that's like you know New Zealand's pretty small. New Zealand's pretty rural, but Darwin, New Zealand, uh, is it, sorry, is an Australian city um, of about one hundred thirty thousand people on the north coast of Australia. Um, and in 1942, it was bombed by 242 planes from the Japanese Empire, uh, apparently dropping more bombs on the city than that at Pearl Harbor. So it was a massive fucking attack. Uh, it was the single largest attack, in fact, by a foreign power on Australian soil. So it was an extremely significant event in Australia's history. And although this is kind of a couple of years ahead and kind of where we are in the story. We're roughly about 1939, 1940 in the story. Uh, I mainly want to tell you this because it illustrates that during World War II, there was an ever-present threat, especially prior to the United States entering the war, uh, that Australia and New Zealand as well would be invaded by Japan and as such would likely fall as a result. Uh, Japan is obviously massive. You know, at least at the time, it was an empire. It was huge. Uh, it had invaded Manchuria. It had did, it had destroyed uh, basically China as we know it. It was, it was you know unrelenting uh, in its power uh, at the time. Uh, and the Empire of the Rising Sun had steamed through areas like Indonesia, Malaysia, Papua, and others. And they even openly talked about how undefended and vulnerable New Zealand was. They were, they were giving us, you know an absolute indication that that we were 
basically nothing to them that they they could invade us at any time and that we would absolutely be destroyed you know that it was they they were they were being pretty fucking ballsy at the time <laughs> yeah, you um, read that in the paper and you're like oh hmm. exactly and in fact the mood in Aotearoa would have been one similar to that of the British at the time of Dunkirk, which was actually happening at roughly at the same time as when our story is at. Um, you know, Britain was faced with a very likely Nazi invasion of the British Isles. You know, they they were they were faced with the possibility that Britain might be invaded for the first time since the 18-something or others, which, here's a fun fact for you, uh, the last time that people think that Britain was invaded was the 1066 invasion of from Normandy. That's actually not true. Uh, it's actually 18-something or other when the, like, a small contingent of French motherfuckers like invaded Wales or something but <laughs> anyway anyway it's you know it's it, basically the idea is that Britain is faced with total annihilation at this point and the mood in New Zealand is likely very similar they are based we are faced with total annihilation um, and the fact is the Japanese were in fact correct about New Zealand's defenselessness uh, we had six Bren gun carriers um, which are essentially lightly armoured vehicles carrying a Bren gun, which is a type of machine gun during World War II. So we had six of those <laughs> for the entire country. Not just one area, the entire country. In the entire country, the landmass of New Zealand is roughly similar to Japan itself. So Japan has... An entire empire it has fleets it has tanks it has men and to defend an area roughly similar size of new zealand and new zealand has six like things on wheels with machine guns on i imagine i i can just imagine that they're like taking like stock of the military's capabilities and like oh how many do you like how many of those do you have someone's like oh yeah six and they're like oh like six thousand no six hundred no they're like oh no yeah oh no yeah that's basically what it was right like new zealand's landmass is larger than that of britain right you know so new zealand is big new zealand is really big um, the thing I, is that we've got a big old mountain range in the middle of the South I Island. That's know what. That. Yeah, I yeah. Feel like so that if you just take, shook me a little bit. Yeah, if you take North Island, South Island, Stewart Island, it has a larger landmass than the than than Britain. You know, maybe Scotland, maybe it's just London. because you guys are right next to Australia, and so it makes you look really small because Australia is fucking massive. Yeah. But I didn't know that. That's amazing. Okay. I learned something. Yeah, I mean, the, I... other, the other thing is, of course, we have a lot less people. Britain has, I don't know, tens of millions of people, whereas ours is roughly like 4.8 million people. And part of that is because uh, in the South Island, we have a great big fucking mountain range in the middle of the South Island called the Southern Alps. Uh, and, of course, that basically that entire area is uninhabitable. So no one lives there, or, you know, no, one, no major kind of urban centres are there. Um, so it's actually New Zealand's actually really big. Um, you just kind of don't know it, as you say, because Australia's right there, and Australia's. Fucking I'm not gonna lie. Huge. You telling me how empty it is, and also how mountainous it is. I'm like, mm, next trip. That's where I'm. Yeah. Going. So to kind of put it, <laughs> kind of put it out there, there's a map on Google Images 
that shows you how many people don't basically how many people don't live within a square kilometer of those areas right so it's colored green for anyone that isn't living there within one square kilometer most of the country is green right like most people don't live within a square kilometer of basically the landmass of new zealand the Part idea of that because... the idea that yep. like i could i could go there and like travel around and almost never see another person oh you've you've done it i'm i'm in <laughs> the only the only thing about that is um people tend to underestimate new zealand's weather uh because we're quite a long narrow country uh weather can change within a day right i can sure. go to work and it can be fucking scorching hot and by the end of the day it can be absolutely fucking pissing down with rain <laughs> you know, and a lot of people have actually died uh, trying to climb mountains and stuff because they underestimated that. They went out in the morning. It was a great day in the morning. And they went, cool, I'm going to go climb, um, you know, Mount Cook or Oraki Mount Cook, which is the new, the highest uh, mountain in New Zealand. But they didn't take any raincoats. And it absolutely fucking buckets down within, you know, by the afternoon. And they're like, oh, shit, I don't have any gear <laughs> to, 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 to deal, deal with, with that. rain. Yeah. yeah, the good news is is that I I respect and fear nature, and therefore yeah. would not do anything that I didn't think I would survive. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm gonna stick to like really nice, clear paths, like anywhere I know that I could be easily found. Yeah. Definitely. New Zealand's really good for that because we, we do have, like, the Department of Conservation deals with all, like, the trails and stuff and all the huts and shit and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, the good thing about New Zealand is we don't have, um, like, Australia. You know, every every second thing in Australia is trying to murder you. It's venomous. It's poisonous. It's, it's got sharp claws or bikey teeth or something. New Zealand is like, we got birds. And that's basically it. <laughs> We don't have mammals, mostly. So no mammals. That's well, fuck, weird. We're gonna go on a bit of a tangent here. We've we've already gone so far off of what we were supposed to be talking about. Okay, so New Zealand, in terms of endemic mammals, that is mammals that are only found in New Zealand. There are only two species of bats. Those are the only mammals that we have in New Zealand that are actually meant to be here. We do have other mammals at the moment, in terms of. Um, mammals that were brought over by uh, Europeans. So in particular, we have rats, uh, which were also brought over by Māori as well. Um, so the Kiori, or the Pacific rat, was also brought over by Māori. Um, but we also have the ship's rat and the Norway rat. The ship's rat is the black rat, famously um, the uh, perpetrator of the Black Plague. Mm-hmm. But we also have uh, possums, uh, Australian brush-tailed possums, um, and stoats ferrets, weasels, that kind of stuff, as well as hedgehogs and that kind of thing as well. So we have a whole bunch of mammals that are wrecking our environment um, and is a really big problem in New Zealand for destroying our native flora and fauna. Anyways, I have just through curiosity and interest driven us so far off of what we should be talking about. So let's go back into the Second World War. Let's go back to the Second World War and what New Zealand was doing uh, during the Second World War. So of course, New Zealand was pretty defenseless when it came to our armored division um you know as i said we only had six bren gun carriers for the entire fucking country which was <laughs> roughly the same size as japan larger than uh the british isles so that's not fucking good enough basically 
<laughs> so so Britain in 1940 was of course more concerned with its own survival in terms of Dunkirk was roughly happening in 1940 as well. So as mentioned, supplies of any description, be they guns, ammo, food, materials, or tanks, would not be arriving anytime soon. So we could not rely on the fact that Britain, our mother country, would be coming to our aid. We had to do something ourselves, right? In steps, our boy, Bobby Big Nuts, simple <laughs> to fix the problem. So he said, Bobby Big Nuts Simple, or Robert Simple, if you're polite, said, quote, if this country is to be invaded, we need to have equipment as good as that of uh, of the other fellow, if not better. We were, we could not buy tanks from outside, but had to act on our own, on, on our own resources. Luckily, we had big tractors here, and they were a godsend. They had proved one of the greatest boons the country had ever known, permitting us to build highways, aerodromes, camps, and fortifications in record time in the Dominion. They have proved invaluable for other urgent purposes outside New Zealand. End quote. So, Bobby is gonna fucking solve our problem with, in regards to our armoured division. Right? Daddy's here. So, oh, Bobby is here. I so really feel like I need to. I, I feel like I need to um, clarify that I said Daddy's here, and I just I feel like that was important. <laughs> Daddy is here. Dad's da- da- on the Daddy scene. Simple is here. So, Altador had no armored force apart from those Bren gun carriers. And by that I mean we had no tanks. We had no Shermans. We had no Panzers. We had nothing. We had nothing but men with guns and probably pitchforks. So that's all we had. So we had to get some tanks from somewhere. uh, Because, of course, the Japanese Empire were taunting us, saying we could probably invade you at any point and you would fall. Uh, so we had to get tanks from somewhere to try and at least elevate ourselves um, to some sort of, um, you know, fighting fighting force to be able to combat them effectively. So initially, the Department of Defense had made inquiries to the United States for supplies of armored plate. Armored plate, of course, being pretty fucking important to, to tanks, right? <laughs> you know? So, simple though... Um, and a slightly different idea in mind. The idea of the Department of Defense was to get armored plate from the United States to build a tank and then use that to defend against a potential Japanese invasion. Simple had seen a photo of a Caterpillar tractor um, on a postcard, an American postcard, and decided um, that that was pretty good uh, because he had seen the postcard showed a Caterpillar tractor that had been converted into a tank. Mm. And he went... Yeah, so it is. That's good enough. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so You're yeah, welcome. so thought, yeah, American postcard, converted caterpillar tank. So it is. That's good enough for me. And as such, the spark for a legend was born. So the thing about this was it would take time to get blueprints from America for this tank. And so Simple said, 
or simple had his sort of let's do this attitude which if you're a kiwi that's a joke for you uh let's do this uh so that's a joke for you guys um so he basically said fuck that and got to work with no plans whatsoever <laughs> uh he had no blueprints he had nothing but a fucking postcard to go off and he went to work with his departmental engineers in Tamuka, which is in South Canterbury, uh, which is south of Christchurch, um, if you kind of know where that is in the South Island. Um, so he went to work. So they, there were, the, the idea was that they would take 81 Caterpillar tractors, which were similar to kind of bulldozers, uh, and build armoured bodies for them. So I have actually got uh, pictures of those tractors um, or I've got a picture of a tractor um, to kind of give you an idea of, excuse me, kind of what what we're looking at here. Alrighty, let's get this pulled up. So oh, kind of see what. It's so what, cute. Yeah. It's like baby's it first like a, tank. It, this is adorable. So that was that was a tractor used in New Zealand for a, a variety of different purposes. And the idea was that we were going to build an armored body. For that tractor to You're turn into a tank. militarize this shit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that was that was the hope, right? Mm, doesn't sound like it's going to go so well. Yeah, <laughs> that was we the hope. Tractors, and throughout the country. So were these just like privately owned? Yeah, mostly. Yeah, mm. privately owned. So. This would be effective as the vehicles could operate as per normal in the fields. And then once they were called upon for military service, they could be fitted with the armor, which would require minimal modification to the t to the tractor itself. So the idea is that they build an armored body for the tank. And then if New Zealand gets invaded by the Japanese, then they could put the armor onto the tank. Uh, sorry, onto the tractor. And then that would turn it into a tank. Oh my so god, it requires... it's like a cute little outfit for him. Exactly. Honestly, I know this is weird to say, but like this tractor, it just looks like like baby's first tank. Like Yeah. He just he's just so small. <laughs> he's he's so cute. <laughs> so small, but so strong. So small. <laughs> so so that was the idea, right? You got to <laughs> You got a tank. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You You put an armored body on him. Then he's a tank, right? <laughs> that was the idea. So the point being that you could take the tractor. He could be out doing whatever he's doing normally, and then easily be fitted with a tank. He's doing right. such important work. <laughs> It's just so cute. He's the big boy now. I'm just so proud. <laughs> okay. okay. I need to take this seriously. This is serious business. This is serious business. We, um, don't, we don't laugh on this podcast. It's not funny. We don't, we don't like to have fun. We don't have fun on this. See, history <laughs> is serious. Okay? Okay, continue. Anyway, an early prototype of this tank was made in June of 1940, uh, with the armor being substituted for plywood at this early stage. So it was kind of like a 
like a concept, right? So like, this mm. is what we can do. Um, if we have the, you know, substituting the plywood for metal, you know, this is the kind of thing that we're looking at, right? So it's just a bit of a con, you know, kind of a proof of concept type thing. Um, and even at this point, uh, armament for anti-tank or infantry support roles was ruled out with various restrictions. So they they thought about putting anti-tank weaponry or anti-infantry weaponry, and they thought that's not going to work due to you know how the the tractor works, how much the tractor can, you know, how much weight the tractor can take, that kind of stuff. So they'd already ruled that out. At, that, at, at this very early stage, that, that wasn't going to work. However, a 37mm cannon on a revolving turret and machine guns were seen as of vital importance. So they knew that they, they definitely had to have those on. So the thing about that, though, was that due to those wartime issues of procurement that we kind of already talked about, so the fact that they couldn't get tanks from overseas or they couldn't get other materials uh, from overseas, whether that be from Britain or the United States or whoever, a cannon could not be sourced. So they couldn't put a cannon on the top. They couldn't, you know, they just didn't have the ability to get a cannon because it wasn't made locally. And, you know, due to a variety of different factors, they couldn't get it from overseas because, you know, there was a fucking war on, right? <laughs> so... They couldn't source the cannon, and instead it was replaced with another machine gun. So, in total, this would mean the tank would be armed with six Bren .303 caliber guns. Uh, machine guns, I should say. So, Bren was a standard-issue Britain machine gun. Um, so, you can look that up. I didn't look into it too much, but if you want to look that up, you can. But basically, it's a standard-issue britain machine gun that most squads had one member of that squad issued with it so that they could operate it so they were not totally widespread but most squads had at least one operator that could operate a bren machine gun so they had six bren machine guns one on each side of the tank one at the back one in the turret and two in the front bringing the total crew of the tank to eight when you also cl include a driver and a commander right because they're obviously you know you need someone to drive the fucking tank and you needed someone to tell the tank where to fucking go plus <laughs> the six other boats to actually fucking shoot out of it right so where do they you had a tank them? you had a crew of eight where do they go where do they go now this is the interesting thing oh i'm glad so that there's was, an answer to this yeah so this was the this was in an ideal world when new zealand could field enough men Obviously, at this point, New Zealand had about one million people in total, you know, as a population. You know, that's including women and children as well. So the likelihood of being able to field eight men per tank was pretty unlikely. Um, but the other thing that should be noted as well is that one of the six gunners did need to lie on a mattress on top of the engine, which is not an ideal position because <laughs> you know the engine is going the engine is going blah, 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 right the whole time and you're fucking sitting on this on this engine going blah, 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 right the whole time trying to fucking shoot nazis out of it ideally you know that's not gonna work your aim is gonna be shit so so did they that's like not gonna work. did they like make them bigger where do you fit eight people i'm gonna tell you guys it's real small in this picture yep. you put you yep. put the armor over it and it gets it gets like three times bigger no no 
they just real people in there. They just cram eight people. Pretty much. They'd all be yeah. on that mattress at that point. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um it's it's not a great situation to be in. And saying that though, tanks generally in World War Two were not a great situation to be in. Um, for anyone who's listening, uh, the movie Fury with uh, Brad Pitt, I'd recommend watching that, which is all about a, a tank crew going through World War Two to kind of show you how shit it was. Um, so it's, it's not a great position to be in. So after all this, the, uh, you know, they we had the plywood, we had the concept. Um, so the next step was to make the tank an actual steel plate to present to the army for consideration. So we needed to present it to the army so that they could go, yeah, that's something that we want, or no, fuck that, that's that's fucking awful, you know. So we needed, you know, Bob needed to make it simple, needed to make it an actual steel plate. Um, the the kind of problem with that was that due again to the kind of wartime considerations or the procurement issues that we had, steel actually wasn't available. Not even from Australia, who was the closest neighbour to New Zealand. So, instead of actual steel, corrugated iron was used. Um, which, I don't know how much corrugated iron is used outside of New Zealand, uh, but corrugated iron is a metal commonly used in New Zealand for quick and dirty projects, like sheds. And it can be seen a lot just kind of lying around. So corrugated iron, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically, um, I think it's like magnesium or manganese or fucking something like that. Basically, (laughs) it's like real wavy, right? It kind of looks kind of real wavy. And um, it's generally not used for anything that you think is going to stand the test of time, right? Like Rome did not make the fucking Parthenon whatever out of fucking corrugated iron because it's a shit metal, right? The, The general idea was that it was made out of a pretty crap metal that you could find anywhere in New Zealand. So it was readily available. That was kind of the main thing. So, yeah, so it was very common, but not really designed for tank armor, is the kind of takeaway from there. And the thing about that was adding corrugated iron reduced the speed of the tractor-come tank to about 10 kilometers per hour, which is about 5 to 6 miles per hour, for those of you who work in freedom units um (laughs) so along with this the body rolled badly while off-road making fire on the move very difficult so the the the, the tank kind of rolled from side to side um as it kind of was off-road and you know it shook a lot obviously one bastard was on the mattress while on the fucking (laughs) he's going like the whole time so it was a big fucking problem and you can't aim when you're moving then. So you really, you just got to stop. And you're like, okay, everybody stop moving. Go take aim. Yeah, which Ooh. obviously has pretty massive tactical implications, <laughs> right? And the main problem being that New Zealand at this time, and even today, is the bulk of New Zealand's landmass is is rural, right? Is, um, you know, is, is off-road. You know, very few... You know, New Zealand obviously has another number of major urban centres, but the, the tank would be expected to be going on going off-road probably 95% of the time. So if you can't shoot out of the fucking tank for 95% of the New Zealand's landmass, that's just not going to fucking work. That's no fucking good. So <laughs> it 
it wasn't great. So when it was shown to the army, they, at least for starters, they weren't terribly happy with the lack of turret cannon. But to be honest, they just basically said, fuck it, there were no other, no other options. And they actually ordered three more to be built. <laughs> like, yeah, at this point, let's just do it, I guess. Wait, just wait, fuck it. Let's do it. It'll be fine. So they just, yeah, so they, they ordered three more tanks to be built because no one else was doing anything out anything better. <laughs> so the armor of these so we're gonna we're gonna throw some stats at you a little bit now. So the armor of these three tanks would consist of two layers of corrugated iron, which would result in a total of twenty one millimeters of armor, which is zero point eight two inches again for those of you working in freedom units. So, this was supposedly, uh, quote, severely tested, end quote, and was alleged to be sufficient to stop anti-tank rifle bullets, as well as being easy to make. So, all things considered, that's pretty fucking good! You know, a, a, a metal that is, you know, pretty readily available, you put two of those metals slapped together, and it can stop anti-tank bullets, that's that's pretty fucking good. Is that alleged or is it true? The quote said it was severely tested. And so, okay, so so, so in, at no point was this ever proven wrong, as far as we know. Yeah. So cool. as far as I can tell on my research, it was this was true. It could. Stop I guess. I guess I was. Was. I guess my. I was worried that you would be that you then be like, but, and that there was no, that's. So, I wasn't no sure if that's where time. we were moving. So no, no so no actually, it was as just, far as we can tell, yeah, it could it was stop anti-tank. So yeah, that's as I said, that's pretty fucking good, and, and you know, all things considered. On top of that, special trailers were also made uh, to move them around, being able to be unloaded and combat ready in a matter of minutes. So you could load them onto this track, onto this 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 track to come tank, onto a trailer, drive it to where you needed it to go, and unload it and have it combat ready in yeah less than five minutes essentially which is fantastic and the cool thing is i actually have a picture of one of these uh these trailers so that's kind of what it looked like it kind of looks like a trailer i mean there's nothing super special about him oh my he's so tall yeah so this uh, this also shows the actual tank itself (laughs) the corrugated line looks kind of wavy design um on top of the on top of the tractor as well Uh, sorry on top of the, the trailer the 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 trailer obviously is cool because it's the transport, but then the tank, yeah. which was originally yeah. you know not a tank, it's still yeah. just as small as it looked earlier, and it's fitting yeah. eight people somehow. But it's so yep. tall. Yeah. So the thought was as well, it'd probably fit anywhere. Pro- it'd probably fit like six to seven people potentially due to you know uh, manpower restrictions and stuff. But yeah, ideally that tank would fit eight people. Is, is the idea so it's it's not big it's not big you have to you have to really make friends with the people in there because yeah absolutely you're gonna be a bit on top of each other <laughs> yeah you gotta you gotta get real friendly uh with the with the the other blokes that are gonna be in there uh, <laughs> fortunately so yeah so there was this trailer that was built and you know the, the, you know bob Sebel was pretty happy with this um, so in January 1941, uh, the first tank uh, of the three that were ordered was finished in March, 
and the second tank um, so the first tank was finished in January and the second tank was finished in March um, and this and the third tank was finished a bit later on in the year but the first two tanks took part in a parade um, in Christchurch which is in um, the South Island um, and uh, yeah so they took part in a parade in Christchurch in April uh, with one being sent to Wellington and then subsequently onto Auckland um, to basically promote the war effort so their idea was that they were going to uh, send those tanks out into um, into some parades and promote the war effort, hopefully drum up some support, you know, people donating money or, or goods or, or whatever else, you know, trying to, you know, really get the public on side with this war um, that they, at least the government thought was a good idea. Unfortunately. <laughs> oh, there's the but. The but, yes. Um, this was met with public ridicule and earned the tank and earned the tanks their name, quote Bob Semple's tank. Uh, later reduced to that's just, to just that's, not. That, that's literally just what it is, though. Yeah. So Bob I love Simples that. I love. I love the ridicule. They're like, "Ooh, it's Bob Semple's tank," and that's like, "Yeah, but that that is it." Yeah. That is what it is. <laughs> You're yeah. correct. That is that is right. So like this has later derogatory. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so it was later reduced to calling him uh, just the Bob Semple, right? Which is what we call it today, is the Bob Semple tank. Um, so the ridicule... The thing about this, though, is the ridicule at these events wasn't entirely misguided, as the crews were instructed not to change gears uh, during these, these, these events, uh, because the whole tank uh, had to be made stationary to change gears, so you actually had to stop it and then change gears and then it could go again. And the thing was, Simple worried that the public may think that the tank had stalled if it stopped in the middle of the road, the, the driver changed gears, and then he continued on, which obviously wouldn't be a, uh, a good look. Um, so I've got some more, couple more pictures um, of, the, of the tank. So that's the tank, and then the second picture I've sent you is the tank with Bob Semple next to it. So Bob Semple, as I understand it, is the man on the left in that second, that okay. second picture. Yeah, that makes sense. I like the... You have that, like, the the kind of wavy iron, and then just, like, a random yeah. gun just stuck straight out the side. Yeah. So beautiful. <laughs> so good. I remember there's a, there's, a, there's a tractor directly underneath that. So there's an actual... You know, agricultural device underneath that tank. He's he Wait. he's multi-purposed. Exactly. So okay, a man of many talents. The idea, right? The idea that you could slap the the armor on top, and you'd have a tank. But during the interim of it not being uh, needing to be a tank, you can make it a tractor. So 19, uh, August 1941. Uh, the tank armor was subjected to even more testing. So we already know that it could, um, you know, that it was uh, subjected to certain types of uh, machine gun fire and that kind of thing. But it was subjected to more testing, specifically intensive machine gun fire and accurate close-range sniping, resulting in some weaknesses being highlighted uh, due to the machine gun ports uh, allowing for some bullets to enter the tank. So those machine guns uh, that you, you know, machine gun ports that you see in the previous pictures, uh, they actually let bullets 
into them, uh, which was, you know, not great. Um, to, you know, to put it in the simplest terms, it was not a good, it's not a good thing. It's not great. But otherwise, not too bad. In fact, uh, the general chief of staff, which was Major General Edward Puttock, um, so one of the highest ranking generals in New Zealand at the time, uh, in absence of an alternative, said that it was a very useful weapon for a certain style of warfare. Which... That sounds like he's... That sounds like it's shade dressed as a compliment. Absolutely. I was about to say, it is a kind of backhanded compliment, in a sense. Um, he is kind of saying that it's it's kind of alright, but at the same time, it's kind of shit. <laughs> I recognize that we can't do literally anything else about this right now, so it's fine. But in a certain style of war, maybe maybe this wouldn't be ideal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So he's he's kind of saying, yeah, it's 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 not great, but fucking hell, no, we haven't got anything else, so (laughs) fuck it, it's it's good enough, (laughs) you know. And the kind of fun fact about um, Major General Puddock is that he later attained the rank of Lieutenant General, uh, and he was the first New Zealand person born to do so. Um, So, you know, that's kind of a a cool thing. But in any case, the General thought it was a powerfully armed... uh, It was powerfully armed, and the speed was sufficient. Um, Which, if I was a General, I would think 10 kilometres per hour was not sufficient. (laughs) But that's fine, he thought it was. In fact, the only thing he didn't like uh, was the height, uh, in particular the turret, which added about 60 centimetres, which is about two feet. Um, you know, it, it didn't really add much gain. You know, it was just another machine gun and not a cannon, right? So you've already got, you know, five machine guns on the outside of the tank, plus you've got this this turret that has another machine gun. If there's and- no cannon, it's just not worth it. Exactly. So it makes you a bigger target when, in fact, you're not really gaining all that much by adding another can. I do have to say, he he looks a little top-heavy. Exactly. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the thing, right? So Puddock actually uh, recommended the removal of the turret um, based on the fact that it it was a machine gun. If it was a cannon, he was all good. He said, yeah, if it's a cannon, there is absolutely value in that. Right, but there's no there's no value in just it being another machine gun. So, you know, if there's another machine gun, just just fucking chop the top off. Don't worry. Uh, despite this, it was seen as being Simple's tank. It was politically aligned with Simple himself, uh, which would cause certain sort of issues um, and things later on down the line. So, further tests in October of 1941. Um, at the Burnham camp near Rolleston, which is also outside Christchurch, um, were conducted, and Puddock was actually in person um, attending those uh, those tests. Um, and the Major General, um, of course, at this time he was an experienced commander, um, so he was actually recently returned from the Mediterranean um, front. So New Zealand at this time was um, quite experienced in North Africa. Um, so New Zealand was um, quite involved with the North African North African campaign, um, in particular in the Battle of Al Alamein. In fact, New, Ze- uh, New Zealand has a battalion 
um, that was pre that had been called the 28th Battalion, which um, was colloquially known as the Maldi Battalion because it was made entirely of uh, Maldi individuals. Uh, and Field Marshal Erwin the Desert Fox Rommel, so one of the big boys in Nazi Germany, said something to the effect of, give me an army of the Māori Battalion and I will conquer the world. So New Zealand was pretty fucking, you know, pretty fucking involved and quite <laughs> highly regarded in the North African campaign at this point. And Puddock was involved in kind of that whole kind of saga, essentially. So it was, a, you know, it was a huge fucking deal. You know, he actually, you know, knew his stuff and he said, quote, the arrangement of the turret and of the machine guns was ingenious and efficient, end quote. And that, quote, I was impressed with the skill and ingenuity displayed by those concerned in the tank's design and manufacture, adapting a civilian vehicle for military purposes, end quote. So, to kind of break that down, despite the tank being laughed at throughout this whole thing, you know, there was someone with actual military experience saying actually it's not that fucking bad he's kind of again he's still got that kind of backhanded kind of shade thing going on but he is yeah he's saying yeah you know what yeah it's fucking all right it's functional it works it works that's not great it could definitely be better but you know he's, he's actually pretty impressed by it you know overall which is kind of amazing um, and even um, in, in recent times, uh, it's become a bit of a meme, um, despite <laughs> all of this kind of thing. Um, there, there is a, a, a question on, on Cora. I think it's called Cora. Uh, Q-U-O-R-A. Yes. Um, yeah. That basically asks, what would win between 10 Tiger tanks and 4,000 Bob Simple tanks? <laughs> uh, yeah. Which... Um, the community seems to be divided on. <laughs> uh, some say that the Tiger tanks are obviously going to win because they have the superior, superior firepower. But others seem to say that the Bob Simple tanks, yeah, you're going to lose probably about 2,000 of them to the Tiger tanks. But at some point, they're going to be overrun, you know, with six bring guns. And, you know, they may move slow, but they've got six bring guns and stuff. They're going to eventually be overrun. So, you know, the, the community seems a bit divided. On that kind of stuff, and there are weigh in, um, listeners. What will win? Yeah, what will what will win? Put put it in the comments below. This isn't a YouTube video, <laughs> but put it in the comments below. You know, what do you think would win? Ten Tiger tanks or four thousand Bob Simple tanks? So yeah, so there's a bit of bit of kind of controversy, I guess, um, into what would you know what is better. I understand this is a tank, yeah, and. And it is serving as a very serious military function. Why is it so cute? I, I think it's just, like, you know, it's, it's, it's quite compact compared to, like, other tanks. You know, you like, see other tanks, and they've got the long fucking nose and shit. Yeah. And, They're they look scary. Quite innocent. They're scary, yeah. This one, yeah. this one just looks like if you had a pet tank. That's yeah. what it would look like. That's what it would look like. Yeah, it's, there's something very endearing about it, and it's really weird. Yeah, well, yeah, I kind of talk about that actually a little bit kind of later on, but yeah, it is quite a kind of endearing tank, right? Despite the fact that you know it's meant to be a 
weapon of war. A murder and, device. Um, yeah, a murder device. <laughs> um, so the kind of thing with, with this, though, was that it was tied to Semple personally, as, as you know, kind of politically, right? Because his name was uh, was all over it. You know, it was called Bob Simple's Tank or, you know, um, you know the, the Bob Simple Tank or, or something like that. So his opponents actually used it as ammo um, against him. You know, when they kind of had a problem with him, they said, you know, you've made a shit tank. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and that was, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit when it came to, you know, political kind of attacks. Because, yeah, I mean, objectively, the tank was pretty fucking terrible, really. It was it was slow. It was it was hard to fire when moving. Uh, it had no cannon, um, only another machine gun, and comparatively weak armor to tanks of similar weight. Um, and of course, it needed to be stationary to change gears. Um, the other thing is, it actually or top. or rolling yeah. downhill. Yeah, if you're going downhill, you can change gears and it will still keep moving. Uh, but I personally find that kind of cheating uh, because <laughs> gravity is doing the work for you. Um, so, yeah, effectively, it had to stay stationary unless you were going downhill, where gravity was being I assume the just the engine needs to not be running, which in both cases would work. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and the other thing was it had no top hatch, right? You couldn't pop out the top um, and have the guys sort of sit there quite nicely. It didn't mm. have a top hatch. Um, the only exit was actually uh, out the back um, of the tank, um, so you could open a door out the back and all you guys could come out of there. But the problem with that was if you only have one entrance when your whole fucking tank is on fire or, or being attacked or something, this is not ideal, right? <laughs> you know, health safety codes do, you know, do dictate that you need to have more than one exit in the event of a fire. So where's my know, where's my emergency exit row with the yeah. extra leg room? Exactly. You know, I want to have that leg room. You know, I want to be on the mattress, you know, lying down. So with all that fucking leg space, you know. But of course, I can't get out the fucking roof. I have to go out the back with the other bars. So you know, chances are I'm gonna fucking die by that point. So so it was it was a big fucking problem in the event of emergency, uh, as well. Uh, but after all of that. Eventually, the tanks were handed over officially to the New Zealand Army uh, with their turrets removed, um, given that the cannons actually still hadn't been sourced. Um, so the idea was that they would get cannons and then put them on top of the tank, uh, but they still that still hadn't happened. So um, they removed the, the, the turrets and then handed them over officially uh, to the New Zealand Army to do with whatever they so desired. Um and General Puddock, again, recommended that no more vehicles of this type be made and deemed the three tanks suitable for beach defense, should, that, should they come to that. So, again, kind of a backhanded comment. Uh, you know, kind of saying, yeah, they're a bit shit, but, you know, they're all right for beach defense, no worries. <laughs> so, you know, it's something. <laughs> so, yeah, so they weren't... You know, he at least deemed that they weren't too bad. So the tanks were stripped of their armor and returned civilian to civilian duties, uh, basically awaiting their call for military service. Um, basically, you know, of course, that the idea being that those armor kind of um, sets could be quite easily put onto the, 
the tractors and then welded to the tractors so that they could be used for military service. So they were put back into the fields to do what they normally do in the event of uh, Japan invading uh, New Zealand. Uh, the thing about this, though, was that that call never came. Of course, the U.S. entered the war uh, after Pearl Harbor, um, and they actually pushed the Japanese Empire back across the Pacific uh, to say nothing uh, of the fact that better, faster, and more ingenious designs became available. Um, for anyone who's a kind of a tank historian, uh, Valentine tanks were being delivered from Britain, um, and even the humble Bren carrier ended up being produced locally. So, in fact, you know, the U.S. entered the war. Um, they ended up basically reaming the Japanese Empire in the ass. Um, so they ended up being fine. Uh, and the fact that, yeah, you know, Valentine tanks, which is a Brit British tank, ended up, you know, coming about, ended up being pretty good. Um, and we ended up making Bren carriers ourselves. So we ended up having more than just fucking six of them uh, <laughs> in the end. So pretty good. You had ten um, of them. So in the end, they were actually supplanted by a, a variety of different factors. In saying that they never got the call, though, to military service, that's not actually 100% true. Um, it is reported that the third tank that was built did actually see military service in the Pacific Theatre, um, albeit it was stripped of its armour and fitted with a bulldozer blade, so it wasn't actually a tank. It was actually still military service as... A, a tractor or a bulldozer. I'm very but, proud of him. Yeah. I'm very proud. So proud. Rose to the occasion. My boy. My boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so dude, there was some sort of, you know, military service by at least one of the tanks that was uh, a tractor. He did it. Did he come home? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I didn't quite look into that. And I couldn't find much <laughs> on it, but yeah, at least from what I can tell, he did. he did come home. I'm very concerned for... New Zealand's first son. First son. <laughs> third, third tank, but first in our hearts. First in our hearts. <laughs> so, to many, of course, this tank was a colossal failure. From a technical standpoint, uh, you would be right. As, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it had a multitude of problems that made it terrible. And it has been dubbed, quote, the worst tank ever built, end quote. You know, and in personal, kind of personal opinion, that's not necessarily, you know, incorrect, <laughs> right? But in my opinion, that wasn't what it was about. Uh, yes, the hope was to make a functional tank. You know, it was, there was the idea that we could make a tank that could defend ourselves um, from potential invasion. But even more importantly, I would argue, it showed not only New Zealand and the wider world that we would not go quietly. Semple even said in October 1941, quote, that tank was an honest-to-God effort to do something with the material at our disposal when raiders were at our back door. Instead of sitting down and moaning, we felt we ought to do something to manufacture weapons that would help defend our country and our people, end quote. So he was a staunch defender of this tank, even so up until his death. He actually was never embarrassed or shied away from, you know, his, you know, his attempt to make a tank. Uh, he, you know, 
for example, in 1943, in the on the House floor in Parliament, uh, he had the following exchange. So he said, quote, when we came to office, we had insufficient strength to protect a current bun from the attack of a blowfly. But the Japs could be killed with wheelbarrows. We could have stouched them. We had plenty of barrows. Two years before the war, we quietly slipped machines into Fiji and Tonga and built aerodromes there secretly. It was plain as day that the Japs would strike south through the back door of Singapore, island hopping to New Zealand. What stopped them this way? End quote. So there was a retort from the floor that mocked Simple, saying, quote, probably your tanks, Bob, end quote. So, <laughs> you know, the, the parliament was pretty fucking, you know, thought it was pretty fucking funny that he built this dumbass tank. But Bob replied, quote, if that was a cheap sneer, you keep it. I had the vision to try and create something while a lot of others were just sniveling, end quote. And it is recorded that laughter and applause to this response uh, is recorded. I mean, he so, ain't wrong. So, you know, obviously appreciated that. <laughs> so, in modern times, this kind of quote, at least in my opinion, is shortened to, I don't see anyone else coming up with any better ideas. Uh, which, at least, again, in my opinion, really epitomizes this story. Right? So, for all its failings and mockery, the Bob Simple tank was New Zealand's continuation of our number eight wire ingenuity, or our attitude of number eight wire ingenuity, using what we had to build something that worked. It was a continuation of us punching above our weight on the world stage, and in my opinion, pulling the middle finger to the world and saying, fuck you, come get some. <laughs> me, at least, this is Aotearoa's version of Churchill's fight them in the beaches speech. You know, it, it, it's our call to arms. It is our act of defiance. You know, the tank was our way of steering the full might of the Japanese Empire, arguably the most powerful empire the Pacific had ever seen up until this point, in the face. Giving them a pukana, which is that thing that you see the All Blacks doing with the tongue, so it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite a scary sort of thing. You know, showing them that they could take our islands from our cold, dead fucking hands. You know, it, it is, you know, in my opinion, it is, I unironically love the Bob Simple tank. It is, it stands for everything that New Zealand, I think, has stood for up until this point. As I said, basically showing the world, you know, who we are standing up to them and basically saying, basically saying, fuck you, we can stand with the best of them, even if we've only got minimal amount of people. You know? I feel so, like there's, there's something so valiant about saying, we will fight you until we have literally nothing left to fight exactly. you with. Like, exactly. anything that's, we have. That's what I think as well. This was, <laughs> as, as Bob Simple said, an honest-to-God effort to... You know, take what we had and fight to the literal death. Had Japan actually invaded, it probably would have been fucking terrible. But you could not argue that we absolutely fucking tried. So, that's my piece. That's my tension. <laughs> so, of course, you're probably wondering what actually happened to, uh, uh, to Bob Singapore after the war. So, after the war, 
Uh, unfortunately, his support of conscription and later compulsory military service um, in 1948 uh, basically bit him in the ass. Um, his allies saw it as a betrayal, uh, but as he saw it, uh, he was saw it as a continuing, uh, as he always had, as he viewed the spread of communism as a, as a uh, as you know as a threat to the, to the free world. So, as kind of mentioned last episode. Um, he was very against communism, despite the fact that he was uh, very pro-socialism. But, the, you know, there is a difference there. Um, so, yeah, even though, you know, his allies thought it was a bit... He was uh, betraying them. He thought it was, you know, a continuation of what he'd always done. Uh, he believed his tra- precious trade unions were uh, hiding uh, communist, um, you know, revolutionaries. And he allowed them more power um, and influence... And, and allowing those communist revolutionaries um, more power and influence... Um, so he denounced communist union leaders, um, and he fought actually them openly. He fought them openly, um, quite often. And he even wrote a pamphlet called Why I Fight Communism, in which he warned the country to be on guard from the communist menace. Um, and saying that though it is disputed as to whether, uh, he actually wrote it, um, someone else may have ghostwritten it, uh, for him. Hmm. So Simpel remained in Parliament after Labour's defeat in 1949, although he was plagued by health issues for the last few years of his career, uh, resulting in his retirement uh, before the 1954 election. Yeah, because he's going to be like 70 or 80 now. 70-something, yeah, 80. Yeah, so I am about to tell you. Uh, so he died in January of 1955, so a year after his retirement uh, at the age of 82. Okay. So he was quite old. Uh, when he finally retired so he was survived by his wife and two daughters and two sons um so whatever you think of bob simple and his tank no one can argue that he didn't fight for what he thought was right at least in my opinion uh he was one of the most colorful and flamboyant characters of the earliest 20th early 20th century new zealand labor movement using his intelligence get stuck in attitude and talent for rhetoric to get movement, uh, to get the movement political legitimacy and improve the rights and conditions of his fellow workers, which I think he actually did. You know, he did actually improve wages and working conditions of the people that he saw, you know, as his fellow man from his time in his early twenties, early thirties. Um, so you know, he did actually set out to do kind of what he promised to his fellow workers, but. You know, as as with all historical figures, he was not perfect. You know, he he was authoritarian. You know, there's no way getting around that. As his as his uh, position as minister of public works, he was authoritarian. Um, you know, garnering himself many enemies among his usually potential allies, and he did flip flop on conscription. Uh, not to mention the fact that his tank didn't work, uh, at, basically at all. Uh, perhaps for what it actually intended to work for, um, and it didn't actually see active service, uh, which isn't necessarily his fault. Um, but you know, there, there, there are a lot of things to be said that you know he didn't, he wasn't a perfect guy. He he's got flaws, but he also did obviously a lot of great things as well. Though it could be argued that he is one of the critical figures uh, in the beginning of the modern Labour Party, uh, which is at time of recording currently in government and being led by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, 
which again at time of recording is looking at making abortion and cannabis legal so you know depending on which side of the fence you sit on on that um you know that's a pretty good thing you know his his legacy lives on in the form of his party you know the party that he you know kind of set up and kind of helped to set up um you know living on is actually in power and has been in power a number of times the last time the labor party was in power was under helen clark um the second prime minister uh the, the second female prime minister of new zealand that's kind of fucking amazing really <laughs> but to kind of round it out and to kind of finish uh, i think it is best to sum up uh, Bob Semple using the words of Major General Robert Young, who was the Dominion commander of the Home Guard in 1940. Uh, he said, quote, I am proud to be associated with him. He has, for what I wish everyone had, a will to win the war. For when a man has a will to win the war, nothing can stop him, end quote. Well, that was fascinating. And truly, I didn't know any of it. So I have been very effectively taught today. Despite <laughs> <laughs> the fact I am quite drunk. <laughs> so before we let everyone go, um, why don't you tell people how they can find you on any social media that you run for your podcast and your website as well? Yeah, so I, uh, as I mentioned, I am the host of the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. So if you want to find me, or, or connect with me, you can connect with me on the website, which is historyaltaroa.com, or my email is at historyaltaroa at gmail.com, or my Twitter is at historyaltaroa, or Facebook, uh, History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Uh, Aotearoa is spelled A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A, for anyone who's not familiar with that. And if you, you, know, if, if you really like my, my shit that I do, I also have a Patreon. Uh, so Patreon slash History dot com. Uh, sorry, yeah, Patreon slash History uh, If you want to, you know, donate money, but you should probably listen to what I do first before <laughs> I do that. Um, but yeah, that's how you connect with me um, on social media or, or any other way. If you want to either say, "Hey, you're a good bastard," or "Hey, fuck you, you're dumb." So, yeah. <laughs> either way is all good. Um, and you can find my podcast, Happy Hour History, um, just find the podcast itself, obviously searching that. Um, you can find me on Twitter, it's at Happy History Pod. My Instagram is at Happy Hour History Pod. And my Facebook should just be like Happy Hour History Podcast or whatever. It should all be the same logo. And if you have like questions, comments, um, ideas, whatever, I. You know, if you want to tell me that this was dumb, I don't really care. Um, you can email me at um, happyhourhistorypod at gmail.com um, and you can let me know what you thought. Um, if anyone out there is interested as well in um, subjecting themselves to the hot seat of being forced to drink at weird hours of the day to accommodate um, my like weird time zone situation, then you are more than welcome to uh, let me know if you'd like to guest host because this has been so much fun. I've had such yeah. a good time. <laughs> yeah, for anyone who, again, if you haven't listened to like the first episode, it is currently, uh, fucking hell, it is 12 o'clock in, in, in the afternoon nearly uh, <laughs> here in New Zealand. Uh, and Caden is uh, at probably, I guess, 12 a.m. Uh, yeah. in, in Britain. So I've, I've been up since 7 o'clock uh, this yeah. morning drinking, uh, <laughs> which 
probably by most doctors is not <laughs> recommended. But Only if it's a mimosa, which I can tell the listeners it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It was mostly gin and cider. Um, so I'm probably going to go take a nap after this, <laughs> try and knock off all of the all of the alcohol. So yeah. So this thanks was, for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. This has been a weirdly beautiful episode. I learned so much. And we had far too much to drink on opposite sides of the earth. And where else can you enjoy that kind of content? So thanks for listening. And uh, whichever podcast you're listening to this on, um, hopefully the next episode is better. (laughs) 